and welcome to EQ Above IQ, Parenting with Emotional Intelligence and Healing the Inner Child. My name is Trina Casey and I'm your host. On this EQ Above IQ episode, I'm really excited to have Carrie Sutton. She is an educator, speaker, and author who has helped over 25,000 children, parents, and educators with evidence-based strategies tools and approaches to foster children's positive mental health. She's definitely in the EQ realm. She deconstructs the research so you don't have to and provides practical, easy to use tools and strategies that plant the seeds of resilience and emotional well-being in our children. She has just launched her second book, Raising a Mentally Fit Generation. And I'm so excited to read this book. This is something that is the core of my platform. And so I'm always excited when I have fellow EQ based and emotionally intelligent people on the show to spread their message. So welcome, Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Welcome to EQ Above IQ. Hey, Trina, how are you? I'm good. Excellent. Uh, Under the circumstances. I want to thank you for coming on. And I want you to tell everyone how you started on this journey with children in your books. That's a long story. As you can see, with my hair, <laughs> I've been teaching for almost 28, well, yeah, almost 28 years. So teaching and I was a teaching and a guidance counselor in Australian schools. And what I really noticed was we teach kids, we teach kids reading and writing and arithmetic and maths and things like that. But we actually don't give kids the tools they need for life. Mm-hmm. We don't give them the tools of emotional intelligence, of kindness, yeah. of compassion, and looking at and saying, how can we teach that? And I think what I've recognized while I was teaching was that we start too late. We actually start looking for solutions and giving kids the answers when the problem has already started. What we need to be doing is really looking at our kids from birth. How do we interact with them? How do we show them respect? Because when we model them respect for them throughout their early childhood years, they will start showing respect. They will start. We are parents are the first and most probably the most influential teachers of our children. And from in the early childhood years, they're sponges. They take everything in, they soak it up, whether it's correct or not. Whether this is a, and I know, and I've read posts and blogs you've done and and I look on the Facebook page and you talk about this, what's been embedded and ingrained in you from early childhood, from your childhood years is still impacting now. And unless people do work on themselves as adults, I call it an itty bitty shitty committee or an itty bitty crappy (laughs) committee. It's the thing that sits on your shoulder, could sound like your parents, most frequently sounds like a teacher. Yes. Yeah. I talk to teachers about, of, oh, you're never going to be any good at maths or, oh, no, you're not going to succeed in that. It's things we actually then internalize mm-hmm. and start believing about ourselves. 
that experience yeah. limits our possibilities so young. So are you a psychologist? Is, is No, I'm not a psychologist. I'm okay. actually, so I was a trained teacher, an early childhood teacher. So okay. I started working with little people in okay. kindergarten and preschool. So from, I actually worked in childcare as well from birth all the way through to about eight years of age. Okay. And what I realized was we're not giving them the tools. I then went and studied to become a master's of education of guidance counseling and school counseling. And I went and did that. But even then they wanted me to do lots of rote tests so they wanted me to test for IQ and I kept wow. saying you know IQ is important but emotional intelligence is way more important Absolutely. life is a team sport yeah. we can't do life well if we don't know how to get on with people and so I looked at that and went where can I go and how can I help people how can I serve yeah. And that's really why I do what I'm doing as well, because I felt the exact same thing. I taught English abroad. I traveled all over the world as well, teaching in Indonesia, teaching in Italy. I worked with the children and I worked with the inner child, a.k.a. adults. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, we're all just children walking around in adult suits, pretending we have so it right. while we spread our trauma to everyone we touch, especially our children. So I really admire people who recognize that starting young is the way to go because we haven't really come to grips with our trauma as a whole. And this is global. I call it global trauma. So we need to actually take a microscope and really go in first of all, validate and go in and really recognize how do we get here. And so you're located in Australia, the down under, right? Yes, down, that's right. We're down, down under. <laughs> that's but, I mean. uh, and it's interesting when I look at your books, so I've, and I went onto the website and looked at them and I think Trina, for me, that was something I was really drawn to and why I love to be on this podcast because you really help children understand what they've been through because with those books it's almost a lived experience but as we were talking about before the child doesn't have to go through that trauma again or re-experience the trauma what they're doing is watching from the outside as your characters do and they can then identify and go hey that happened to me too I know what that feels like right and that is priceless for kids who, whether they be kids who are biracial and who might be being teased or all those sorts of things, which we have down here in Australia, a lot of bullying happens and we're learning how to deal with that, but it still happens. We're finding one in three children in Australia, so from zip five to 17, one in three, there's been surveys done and they've experienced bullying for a whole wide range of reasons, whether it be LGBTQTI community, uh, mental health problems, trauma, poverty, they've experienced, so they, they might be coming from those backgrounds, but they've experienced bullying and, and wonder, am I worth it? Mm. And your books validate them so well. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's definitely my purpose. And my son, too, really struggled in the beginning years of his school and even now with the bullying because we have a lot of hurt children raising 
children and they don't know, they don't have the tools, really they don't have the emotional intelligence and self-awareness to know what they're doing to themselves, the continuation of the trauma that they're actually perpetuating on themselves and then spreading it to their children. And so Mm. EQ became my focus. And now when I'm looking at your book, which looks fabulous. I love the title of it. Thank you. You're focusing on resiliency. Tell me a little bit about that. I guess when I talked about, or when I named it, a mentally fit generation, I look at mental health because often, and I'm not sure what it's like in Amsterdam or overseas, when we talk about mental health here in Australia, what people sometimes automatically jump to is mental illness. So, yeah, absolutely. And what we've looked at and said is, you know, how can we frame it in a more positive, proactive way? And that's mental fitness. I've been working with a researcher. Her name is Dr. Paula Robinson. She did her PhD on mental fitness mm-hmm. and looked at it and said, these are there are components, just like our physical fitness, we can improve our mental fitness. Yes. So what I've done is taken it looking at optimism, gratitude, strengths, kindness, empathy, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, There's lots of different chapters and they're different ways for parents to help their children gain these skills. I say to people, it's like giving them a toolbox or a tool belt that when they go through life, these skills will help them be more resilient. It's a precursor of resilience. So they need these skills to actually be able to bounce back from adversity. And what I guess I'm hoping is that those, as you said, hurt children, raising children, I'm hoping that they look at some of that themselves Mm -hmm. and go, hey, maybe I could use this in my life too. Right, right. One of the main reasons why I named my podcast EQ Above IQ, Parenting with Emotional Intelligence and Healing the Inner Child, is basically because as I talk about my experiences and the experiences of other people and different tools that we can use, actually teaching parents how to reparent themselves in the process. Because... That is that that whole that that need for compassion starts with you, you know, and I I just I think a lot of us self-included, we get mommy guilt and then we end up self-talking ourselves. As you said, the itty bitty shitty committee (laughs) that's going on in our head. (laughs) But we we have to come back to this, the, the compassion for ourselves, because this is not necessarily our fault either. It is no. the programming that we've had since and the that beginning is, of time. That's oh, <laughs> right. That, that's the generational stuff, Trina. And, and it is. And it's passed on. And I firmly believe that. And, and I often talk about, and so my first piece of work is around, or actually my second piece of work, my first piece of work, I published a book in 2008 called Raising Generation XXL and was looking at childhood obesity. And we're actually taking that into China later this year or looking at taking it into China, actually, no, next year in 2021, because I didn't realise apparently a lot of children now in China are quite overweight and obese, which is something you don't hear about. But it's always been about how can I serve? What can that do? And then I, when you were talking about that and the generational themes that are almost 
embedded in our DNA. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've talked to mums about is perinatal care. So before they have the baby, taking care of themselves when they're pregnant Mm -hmm. and what's their mental health like? Because Mm -hmm. if they're stressed and if they're and the one thing I don't want to do and why I've most probably put off doing it is because I don't want to lay any more guilt on mums. They're doing the best (laughs) job they can. No, that's right. And so I just want people to say, and this is not about beating yourself up about what happened before you had the baby, but it's saying how can we help mums be more calm? How can we help them get out of possibly domestically violent relationships or things like that because this is passed on to the baby? Yes. I remember my pregnancy with my son. I had a lovely midwife and, and, and doctor, and he told me, just imagine fairies and unicorns. <laughs> what do you like? What, he asked me, what, what's your favorite movie genre? And I was like, oh, I love fantasy. I love stuff, you know, you know about magic and everything. Just imagine, don't, nothing should upset you. You know, because that he said it, it passes right on to your child. And I did my best, you know, but, you know. And that's, and we all do our best. And I think that's, and COVID this year has been really nasty because I guess what I have witnessed is mommy shaming. That people online, when, when people are putting things up about the best, that they're trying their hardest, doing homeschooling or whatever they're doing, and then all the trolls jump on and it's not good for anybody's mental health and that's what I've been watching and I'm thinking, this is just not okay. Well, it makes you really see how prominent the bully culture is in the world and this is, you know, it's heartbreaking because, of course, it is public figures that get the most of it, but just the mom who, who wants just to share her experience. You know, I think of Jada Pickett Smith. She's one of my people that I really admire how she raised her kids. She got so yeah. much flack because it was so not traditional what she was doing with her kids. But I see her, her kids, they are confident, they are resilient, they're not perfect by any means, but hey. I, I see a sincere love of self in those. Yeah. Kids. And so when I see that, I said she did it right because that to me is the optimal. What you want your kids to do is love themselves, not to the case of narcissism, because that's a huge problem as well. <laughs> but as we can see with what's going on in some parts of the world. <laughs> Boy, boy, oh boy, oh boy. I honestly, I really think I'm in Amsterdam. And so when I think about Europe and its history and its effect globally, I realize how much all of that came from here. Yeah. All of that came from here because I did an episode, the first episode of the season is about the globalization of trauma. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. What do you, what do you think about that? We've seen it not only this year, but it is, and it's been really a really interesting year, Trina, because I guess what I have observed this year is that there has been so much trauma around the world in so many different ways. But in March and April, the world actually displayed one of the largest Actually, it was. It's been the largest act of kindness in human history mm-hmm. when everybody went inside. People stopped in New York, in Europe. Everybody shut their doors to care for the vulnerable, mm-hmm. to care for the sick, 
there's a time in history that we will look back on when streets were around the world, capital streets, France, London, these streets were empty. And I thought, you know, in amongst this trauma that's happened this year, people can still be kind. They can still be compassionate. They can still show that they care for others by sacrificing because we couldn't, I know here in Australia, we've had borders closed in our country. We can't go to different states. We can't go and see family. We've had funerals. We've had people die. Like there's been horrible things happen, not just because of COVID and we're so very fortunate not to have been touched like other nations, but we have been feeling the reverberating shocks of global trauma here. And when I'm working with kids and families, one of the things I ask families to do is really watch their kids' social media diet and their media diet because what we are seeing on a 24-hour news cycle over and over again is just a repeated trauma. And what worries me is that kids will keep absorbing that, absorbing that, it then becomes embedded in them. And what does that look like in the future? Exactly. That's, it's interesting enough. I've always been very transparent with my son. Most of my listeners know I talk about the PMDD that I have was diagnosed with a few years ago and not knowing that was it the whole time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I suffer postpartum. It was really, I've always had this hormonal roller coaster and, you know, a pretty unhappy marriage didn't help that. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I am is transparent with my child about what's going on with me so that yeah. it's not on him, you know. And so sometimes, you know, we he asked me the question, are we ever going to be able to go back to the U.S.? And my answer is not until it's I feel that it's safe enough for you and I to go back without you experiencing all the trauma with all the energy, because unfortunately we don't have the most competent leader in, in in charge right now. No, And I've got to say, I have teaching friends in the States and things that started. So trauma that was reverberating throughout the world in the teaching community, particularly when that person got into office and started talking about sending dreamers and their families home or, and things like that. And teaching colleagues who are friends of mine were in tears typing and saying, how can this be happening? I've got kids coming to school crying, not knowing whether or not their mum and dad are going to be there when they get home, not knowing whether or not saying I was born in America, why don't they think I'm American? Is it because of the colour of my skin? This is heart-wrenching stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, the sooner the better that person is removed. And I'm not, this is not about politics. This is actually about people. Exactly. And it's about what's been happening to the people. Yeah. And those sorts of things, when you have that as a child, you carry that whole life when you wonder, is it because of my colour of my skin? Mm. Is it because of something I've done? Am I bad? That informs that itty bitty crappy committee and it gives it more power over you for the rest of your life. And that's where I just go, you know, 
not acceptable. This is not okay. It has to change. It has to change. That's what it is. And, but the change really starts with each individual and what I just saw, I don't know if you've heard of Matthew Cook. I just actually posted something he said, and it really, it really resonated with me. Matter of fact, it was exactly what I said on this episode (laughs) where (laughs) I was like, Hey, did they listen to my podcast and just, just (laughs) riffing, Uh, you know, I'm not going to take away his credit, but I was like, I just said that (laughs) where he said there is a mental health crisis going on with in particular white people of America as they are coming into the reality of all these falsehoods that have been told their entire life in order to put them in a position of power. And now everybody's like, no, that was a lie. No, that was a lie. And that truth is scaring the crap out of them. And their reaction has been violence and denial and everything that solidifies, I call their cognitive dissonance. You know, they have one ideal of self and then it doesn't correlate with the truth of their behavior and the reality of the history. And so when I think about globalization of trauma, I think about that. We have to go back and really take an honest look at the history of the world. And understand why it was written the way it was. Was. Mm. And it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, fascinating because we are doing that here as well. Australia has not been particularly kind or considerate for its Indigenous, for our Aboriginal people or our Indigenous population. And exactly as you said, the history was written in some way and no, that's not correct. There was a lot of civilization here. There were so many languages who here and spoken and they knew how to care for land. It's interesting. We were talking about bushfires and yeah. if we had been caring for the land the way our Indigenous people cared for the <laughs> land, the bushfires most probably would not have happened as Bingo. severe as they did last year. And that's it. When you look at and say what's been going on and what stories are told and you hit the nail on the head when you said their fear turns into violence. And this is what I've said to teachers and parents I work with and I try and get them to understand that fear and anger very quickly interchange because it's not in our society we don't like showing that we're afraid. We don't like being vulnerable. So if children are afraid of getting something wrong or if they look down and see that somebody else is better than them and they have that fear of I'm going to look silly, I'm going to look foolish, I'm going to look like I don't know what I'm going to do, they will immediately possibly either flip to class clown or they will do something to get out of that situation. So they will actually behave in a way and it will generally turn and as they get older it will most probably either one of two things acting out which will be violent or like misbehavior because they when our patterns are threatened we don't like it we become fearful and then it will go to anger and they will get angry they'll respond in that way and it it concerns me because my concern is that if these patterns if this is what they've learned from early childhood 
and these patterns are successful or these behaviours are successful in getting them what they want or what they need, they will simply keep on repeating those patterns, which is exactly what you were saying about the United States. Those beliefs and patterns of behaviour of the dominant class at the moment or the dominant paradigm, they have gotten them what they want and they've been successful with that. And now when they're being almost shredded on a daily basis, they will react with fear and anger. Yeah. And the the truth is it really hasn't gotten what they want. The fundamental needs that we have as human beings is acceptance, love, affection. Those are that's validation. But we just want to feel safe and heard. Mm -hmm. And so those structures that they have been built do the opposite of that. It is a, you do this and you, it's, it's conditional. We want to be unconditionally accepted, but they created a world based on conditions, you know? And the truth is, is that there's a ruling class and there's an underclass and that's just, just how it was in Europe, you know, and all that trauma from that, because the ruling class could do whatever they wanted to the, the lower class. And they did. It's interesting. That's when we talk about that, I talk about in the book, I talk about bullying because some of this behavior is bullying behavior and society has a problem with bullying behavior. We, and I, I talk about, we will find it very hard to stamp bullying behavior out and to actually make sure it doesn't ever happen again. I personally don't think that will happen because it is so ingrained in society if you well, look at it governments have bullying behavior towards yeah. the people the people then have bull- so that if you look at an organization often in big corp companies mm-hmm. there's bullies at the top they bully and then they bully down and so and i'm not saying we can't i we can't teach kids behaviors and attitudes and skills to address the bullying yeah. but what we have to look at saying is that it's going to be here because as you pointed out so correctly, Trina, it's gone back hundreds if not thousands of years. These sorts of behaviours have been going on. Right. It's primatal too. We have to realise that we are primates for the most Mm. part. But it's very interesting. I talked about on an episode that we have two close primates in our line. We have the chimpanzees and we have the bonobos. And, you know, the two glaring differences between the two is the chimpanzees act just like governments. They patrol the area. They're they're violent towards people who try to take their things. They're territorial. This is mine. And to the point of brutality, murder and whatever heinous things are to keep that power in due to scarcity. The chimpanzees, unlike the bonobos, live mostly in the trees and they live where gorillas are. So in order for them to get all of the resource, their nutritional resources, they need to go down to the ground and get herbs and vegetation to eat. They have to Mm -hmm. be quick. They have to be stealthy. And the females who are often raped forced to be isolated from other females they're carrying babies and they can't get up and down as fast as the males Mm -hmm. so they're actually physically weaker than the males you know who tend to dominate them Mm -hmm. and then you go to the the areas where the bonobos are there are no gorillas 
They live mostly on the ground. They have all the resources. And what's come out of that is strong female social structures where the females stay together and they are kind of ruling the the roost. But here's the difference. No territorial patrols. They live in multi-troops. And really, they're having sex all the time. They're having a good time. They, the girls with girls, boys with boys. And if a male steps out of line to try to force himself, he got a group of females. And I see <laughs> coming after him saying, oh, you better back up. <laughs> you know, but here's the thing. The overall well-being of the community is high. They can get enough they have abundance is what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm. And they have happiness because of their abundance. So that's a mindset. Mm. That I feel like we really need to focus on globally. And as you can see, the corporations create scarcity. It's not that we don't have enough. We have enough for everybody in the world. Yeah. It's just an inability to want to share because they have a scarcity mindset and they want to stay in power because they know that's what keeps them in power. And that, I guess, that concerns me when we talk about the scarcity mindset because it starts from when we're really little. And when we, and this is why we talk about in the book, well, I've got a chapter, a whole chapter on gratitude to talk yes. about how can we be grateful for what we have because when we are grateful for what we have, what happens is you become aware of what you're so blessed with, whether it be the, and it doesn't have to always be monetary things or clothes. No. We have got so much in this life to be grateful for. And that gratitude develops an abundance mindset. And that's what I often talk to people about and say, look, because schools often set up a scarcity mindset of, oh, we can only get this many A's or, oh, you're going to compete against everybody else. Actually, and I'm not sure if you've read any of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective oh. People or those sorts of, yeah. Forward so and backward. I, I love that book. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I love that book because we talk about the seven habits and synergy is that the whole is so combined. If you take all the parts, take them apart, yeah, they can work. But if you put them all together, they create something better. And what I'm trying to teach kids is say, look, you know, we're stronger together and we use our strengths because we may not always be good at the same things and that's okay because this one will complement this one and we can do all of those things. But let's have that attitude of gratitude to say thank you so much for what we've been given because if you go through life with a scarcity mentality and you develop that when you're young, that's you're going to, one, pay thousands of dollars to therapists <laughs> to try and get over it. But two, it's going to impact everything you see and it's yeah. going to impact. So if you and I were coming to a transaction, even just introducing ourselves, if we had a scarcity mindset, it might be, oh, what can I get? Like in the back of our minds, what can I get from her? Or what what does Trina want? Or what are these sorts of things when often, and, and you see that and it's just, it's heartbreaking because they're only out for self. Exactly. Well, because we're, we're taught such a long way to survive, not thrive. And so if you're in survival mode all the time, which is constantly perpetuated and you're competing, 
one of the heartbreaking things for me is how how competitive and isolated women have become because of it. And we are not going to really shift this this paradigm until women get together and sincerely stop competing to get some type of resource, whether it's males, whether it's beauty, whether, you know, we have to shift that all together. And I'm raising a son. So, you know, one of the things that I'm always telling him, it is the content of character, not the way somebody looks and it's how they treat you. Yes. It's how they behave towards you, not the words. You know, because nobody is walking in perfection. There are going to be days when somebody might be having a bad day and they're going to have a normal biological response. And that's one of the things I'm teaching to to parents in my podcast is your children's reactions are biological responses that you need to recognize are there for a reason. They're not they're not there to make you angry, to burden you or anything else. They're doing what is natural. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. And this is what I try and get across to teachers and parents and say, you know, your child didn't wake up this morning thinking, how can I get up this person's nose? Like, how can I really bother them? That's not what they're doing this for. All behavior, and this is something I firm, I, I've believed since I started teaching, it's my one of my core underpinning philosophies, which is all behavior is a form of communication. Exactly. They are communicating something to you because Either they can't use words or their whatever emotion is underneath, something's driving that behavior. And we need to stand and take some time with them and yeah. be with them and validate that emotion yeah. and yeah. say, you know, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this together rather than screaming and and in the book you can see I've made all the mistakes in the book so I took Mitchell (laughs) shopping one afternoon where I wanted to had to go to the grocery store it was 4 30 the store was closing at five he was tired after school I was in a rush he wanted so so snot and tears all over the face because he was having a meltdown I was embarrassed I raised my voice and said we're leaving and I realized when I got in the car and I thought you know that wasn't a particularly emotionally intelligent response he obviously wanted to, me to take more notice of something or really yeah. wanted me to look at something for a reason. And I apologized and I said, you know, Mitch, I'm really sorry. I used hard words. I used a loud voice. That's not okay. We yeah. Next time when we go to the shop, I'm going to do the Like we'll go and take a look. But it is knowing that what's driving that behavior, What what is underpinning it. It's not that they're, as I said, it's not they're trying to upset you, not trying to get up your nose. They're actually trying to tell us something. Right. And that's one of the things I say in the book as well. Look for, look for signals, look for signs. You know your little person best of all. You know your son. So if he came home and was behaving in a certain way, you go, hey, something's a bit off. Yes. We might need to spend some time together. Yes. And that's that's the awareness piece. That's your self-awareness. Because some most, you know, you were under stress at that time. You you didn't, you know, but the most beautiful and most important thing is that there's always room for repair. There's always room for repair. Nothing is etched in stone when your children are growing up unless you constantly reinforce it. But if you make a mistake and you apologize for that mistake, you are teaching them such a valuable lesson that Mm -hmm. one, everybody is human. Two, 
that if I do something that hurts somebody else, I should apologize and I should take ownership of what I did. Mm-hmm. And if, if more people had that skill set and an understanding, we would have so little problems. Yeah, we'd have the occasional blow up and argument and all that stuff. But you would also have the compassion to come back to that person and say, that probably didn't make you feel too good. So I apologize. I didn't mean it. But what happens is that there's so much invalidation. No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're right. You know, it's like wrong and right is relative depending on the situation. You know what I mean? So it's more about depending on perspective because a child's perspective is their reality. So if they're looking at things in a certain way, they actually, and for children, for small children particularly, it's the yeah. theory of mindset. They can't take another person's point of view. It's not right. actually neurologically possible. Their brain hasn't developed that mm-hmm. stage. So the prefrontal cortex yeah. isn't there. And yet we are trying to and expecting them to regulate their behavior. These, when you look at how the neuron, like the neurological patterns or how it develops, this in the prefrontal cortex is where all this emotional regulation, reasoning, but this doesn't develop into way into the teen, like fully developed. 20s. And yet we are punishing in some situations children who are three, four, and five because they can't control their emotions. No, no, no. no. As there's sometimes we say, and I do apologize, but no shit, Sherlock. It doesn't, <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. Like it's not possible and we are actually asking or expecting of them something that's not physically or neurologically possible. Yes. So we have to guide them and help them with that and not And I don't know, has it been happening overseas? Because here what I've been noticing, one of the things, and I know it's part of our, our children are parts of our heart wandering around outside our body. So we don't want, and in our brains, we have something called mirror neurons. So if we see our children getting hurt or experiencing disappointment or real upset, we can actually feel that. Like we will feel it in our bodies and our hearts will hurt. Yeah. um, Yes, very much so. But Some of the things that I've been noticing lately, particularly as a teacher, is that everybody gets a ribbon in a race and that if you go to a party, I don't know how many children's parties, well, you would have had some lately, but pass the parcel. We have, I don't know if you have it in Amsterdam, but do you ever play pass the parcel where you pass around a present and they unwrap it? Right, yes. No. Okay, so it's pass the parcel. I know what it is. I know what it is. You know what it is? But the problem is now every layer has to have a present of some sort because kids are going, ah, I missed out. You know what? You missed out. It's okay for kids to be disappointed, to have feelings of loneliness. We need to help them work through that because that's part of why they're not as resilient today because we're actually scooping them up and saving them from themselves to a certain degree but also saving them from hurt so if they've gone and somebody said something oh that's okay you you don't have to play with them anymore or or, no we don't go and do that no actually life is going to be full of disappointments Mm -hmm. life is going to be full of situations that don't always go their way we have to teach them and when they're at home with us and this is why I love your book so much because they tell the stories 
and this is what I try and encourage in my book is say, read with your kids. So in the back of the book, there are so many children's stories, like pages and pages of children's storybooks, which are resources to show how do we deal with this sort of thing? How can we deal with bullying? How can we develop our strengths? Those are the sorts of things. How can we develop a growth mindset or more optimism? But the reason I like stories is because as we said at the beginning, it's actually not placing the child back in the situation where they have to face the trauma again. It's actually placing them one step outside and removed and they can go, I know how that feels. I felt disappointed before. And when we've got them in that safety net of home or of with us, we can sit with them in those feelings, talk to them about the story and say, see, because generally it will be a story arc where they'll go through and they'll be disappointed and then it will come back and it will show how that was resolved. So we can show and say to them, even though it hurts your heart and it feels like your heart's going to break and you're really upset about it, it's going to be okay. I'll sit with you. We can talk about this. We can do these things, but you're going to get through it. Yes. Because so many kids who don't have resilience these days just go, you know what? It's all too hard. I can't do it. I just want to stop. They give up. Yeah. And that is something that is, if it's not easy, then it's not worth doing. That's, that's the mentality of a lot of people and a lot of parenting styles really is, you know, when we talked a little bit about this digital stuff, part of the reason why I'm so far, I'm against it is because it's become a babysitter. It's become a band-aid. It's become an outlet or escapism for children. And so that they don't have to deal with their emotions. And then the parents don't have to deal with the children who are having these emotions. And it's definitely got a lot of programming that doesn't teach positive things. And so Mm. I'm on this digital parenting group and I, (laughs) I, I, I read, they posted something about, you just find out that your teenage daughter figured out that she can make money by making videos of her videos naked or doing stuff like that. What do you do? I take the damn computer away. (laughs) Yes. Sorry. I take, okay. I have a conversation to figure out why she feels this way about herself. Because there's an underlining reason, and I know it's happening in the community. I get that. But what is it about you and your friends that are devaluing yourself so much that you will take money over your self-respect and love for yourself? Those Mm -hmm. people staring at you don't care about you, you know? So is money that important? You know, Mm. that's, it's talking about the value systems and values. Yep. And it comes back to the scarcity mindset too, because I'm pretty sure those kids are not grateful for the fact that they have a roof over their head. There's food on the table. They have a computer where people in the rest of the world don't even have those resources. They have no reference point of this reality, how much abundance they have. Yeah. They feel like they want to make money showing their body you know it's it it just blew my mind because I didn't know how to answer that because I don't have a little girl of course and I have a boy and I'm like okay so what if he was the one looking at it I'd be like what are you doing (laughs) yeah yeah well and that's it's interesting isn't it because we talk and it is so much of behavior is driven by values and do they value themselves and 
what is going on in their lives and, again, what are the consequences? So thinking ahead and going, you know, if I do this now, how is that going to impact the rest of my life? Because that prefrontal cortex is not online yet. (laughs) No, no. And that's, and that's the issue. And because when things are uploaded online, it was interesting about three years ago, I was talking to a child and adolescent psychiatrist and psychologist in Melbourne. Unfortunately, this girl had had too much to drink and she passed out at a party. I believe there was some sexual activity, but it was uploaded And the mum came and saw this person and said, look, I need help for my daughter, but can you also help us get that down off the internet? And he had to say, ma'am, once it's on the internet, it's most probably not going to be hosted here in Australia. It will be hosted overseas somewhere and we can't take that. Like that's not in our jurisdiction. It's it's not going to happen. And I think I've talked a lot and when you were mentioning the digital stuff, it's impacting how kids read because now what we're finding at schools is they look, you know how there's ads or different things, they look to the outside of the screen, they actually don't read across the page like they would normally read. There is so much that's impacting. And the thing that worries me more than anything else is when you and I went to school, Trina, we could go home and shut the door and the world would be kept outside. Yes. Now with these devices, the world comes in and whether it be nasty things, trolls and waking them up in the middle of the night with friends' texts or things like that, they're almost on all the time. And that is where I look at And we talk about that in the book and I say, look, you've got to set boundaries. As children and lots of parents go, oh, but I, I want to be their friend. No, no, no being no, no, a parent no, no. is not actually about being liked all the time. It's actually about setting boundaries because children crave boundaries. They want to know that you are in charge, that you're going to keep them safe, that these are the boundaries they've got, and that you know what? They can then blame us as parents and go, oh, yeah, my mum's a real cow. She wouldn't let me do that. I couldn't yeah. come out and do that or she won't let me do this because then that gives them an out when they're a teenager and they can go, yeah, it's, it's mum's fault. But it's also about that's because they have similar values to us and we value these things. We think it's important. And yeah. Yeah. I just uploaded the podcast for today and I talked about that. I talked about how I feel like it's time we need to pull back from the digital things. And one of the things that people don't realize is that the people who created this stuff don't let their kids have it. They didn't let their kids have it because they saw the highly addictive and psychological and neurological damage that it actually causes them because the act of writing, I write my books too. I don't just type them. Mm. I write. It actually gives you the ability to recollect and remember things. That process, Mm. that, that pulling on that part of your brain is connected to everything else. So we're taking that away from kids. And I've seen horrendous handwriting. I teach a a class Mm. called Mindful Storytellers, where I teach children how to write a book through the principles of emotional intelligence. Now, when I see these kids handwriting, I'm just like, is this real? I mean, and I'm talking Mm. about 10 or 12 years old. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about legibility. I can't even read it. Like in in It looks like a chicken danced across the page. (laughs) Yes. You know, like they call it doctors have the worst handwriting, right? That's what they say. It's chicken scratch, right? But they're not doctors. (laughs) They're just 
kids. And, and here's the thing. I understand that there can be some value for computers in school, but they're doing the same thing that parents are doing at home. They're using it to replace actual teaching. And mm-hmm. that actual teaching builds more than just the intellectual skills. It teaches the social skills. And so that is what, because you have hit on the crux of it, yeah. a computer is a tool. Yeah. It's not the teacher. And research around the world time and time again has shown the difference that the difference for kids isn't about having more computers or things. The difference is actually the teacher is standing in front of the class and the relationship they have with those kids, where those kids know that that teacher is there, that they're actually present in the room, concentrating and focusing on them, that they know them as individuals, that they're connected and feel belonging. It is the relationship. It's, it's all teaching is all and Life is all about relationships. So we can't replace it with a digital device because that is just a tool. It's not the thing that's going to make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, I have some teachers push back on this and I have some teachers who wholeheartedly agree, which I've interviewed on the podcast. Our teachers are an extension of our parents in that classroom. We look to them for approval and validation. We look to them for wisdom and caring. And when we devalue by, you know, monetary means and also by importance, teachers, we lose an asset for the culture and the society. And so I take it as an honor to be a teacher. I take it as an Mm. honor, you know, when I interact with my, the teachers that my son has, I connect with them. I'm trying to connect with them on an emotional level, but you know, you have some that have detached because it is a hard job. It's a, and it can be extremely painful. Like you described the teachers who were crying because of their, you know, their kids might be taken away. And that is the type of teacher we want. We don't want oh. we don't want the robot yeah. to say you know and 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 detached emotionally. Kids don't thrive in those environments. They actually nah. just become cold or hurt and unloved. And I've had both types of teachers in my life. I think we all remember that teacher that gave that encouraging word that yep. took you on a path of loving yourself, and then the mm. one that made you feel horrible because of their racial or social biases and you're just like I just want to be loved by you you know yeah Yeah. that's we want to feel connected and like we belong yes exactly and they are in the classroom that teacher creates the climate and the weather and that how they interact with little people individual children is what the other children will watch and will model Exactly. That's, that's another thing too. So we need to teach our teachers emotional intelligence. I think that's one of the biggest things that need to be a part of the teaching model in general. And I did a little exercise with my son last night where we have these cards where we ask each other questions and they're just kind of like conversation cards to kind of reconnect during the day. Mm-hmm. And, I, and one of the cards said, if there was a subject that's not being taught in school right now, what would it be and why would why would you want it to be taught in school? And he said to me, emotional intelligence. I was like, that's my boy. 
<laughs> that is so true. And that, and seriously, Trina, that is so important because the problem is you cannot model what you haven't got yourself. Exactly. And if you haven't got that, that's why and I've studied with Martin Seligman and one of the things we talk about with Seligman and the positive psychology with the emotional intelligence things is that first we have to work with teachers and parents. They need to live it first and understand it and Mm -hmm. practice it in their own lives because unless they have that real life experience with it they can't actually model it or they can't you can't demonstrate it and to be emotionally intelligent you actually need to be able to think on your feet and, and to model those sorts of things for the children in your care because otherwise you're going to be modeling things that we don't want them to pick up and take with them for the rest of their lives. Yes. Preaching to the choir, preaching to the choir. Okay. (laughs) Now I'm going to ask you, how do people find you, find your books? Where can Mm -hmm. they go? Okay, so carriesutton.com is where you'll find me, K-A-R-I-S-U-T-T-O-N.com and Raising a Mentally Fit, oh, actually it's just called Mentally Fit Generation. So Raising a Mentally Fit Generation is the book, but Mentally Fit Generation is the website and they can go there and take a look. Oh. And they can download chapters and there's extra resources and things. So, yeah. Oh, I can't wait to read it. It sounds amazing. I'm excited. Thank you. And I just appreciate you having me on because, honestly, I love the work you do. As I said, I love your storybooks. And I think that your podcast is making a real difference in the life of parents. They need this information. We have families that are crying out for it. I know here in Australia we do, and I'm sure it would be the same around the world, particularly I think more so this year because they've had, it's been an up and down, it's been a roller coaster of a year for everybody. But what it's really brought home when we've all been inside is what what are the fractures? I don't know how to do this with my kids. I'm not sure how, not just teach my kids, but I don't relate so well Mm. and there's these cracks in our relationship and I want to improve that. What can I do? Absolutely. So, yeah, there's so much that we can all do and it's a journey together. Yeah. And this, this pandemic is the reason I started the podcast, you know, because I had been encouraged before to do it, but I was on a different, I was in the classroom and I was doing other things And this pandemic said, Hey, I have no excuse now. Let me just jump on this and start doing what I do in the classroom to a broader audience. I had to get over my stage fright and, <laughs> and just go for it. And I'm glad I did because now I get to have people on like you and have great conversations and really spread people who are making the impact that we need to really shift how we we interact with ourselves, with our children, with other people. We're at a time where we really need to go in. We Mm. need to go in and not be afraid to face the trauma and demons and then love ourselves through it anyway. We got to do that. And that's exactly it. It's the self-awareness you've just described. We've got to have that self-awareness and the self-compassion. Yeah, yeah. But thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of the day. And I've just really enjoyed it. And I wish you all the best for the rest of the year. And let's hear, here's to a fantastic 2021 for us all. Yes, yes. Let's be positive, positive. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Trina.
Bye. It was such a pleasure to have Carrie Sutton on. She really gave us some pearls of wisdom. Thank you again. She's, she's doing great work in the world and go check out her book. We need more people to be educated in these topics so that we can help the next generation be mentally fit. I hope you enjoyed that episode and have a blessed day. 